0: What do you think then are the the kind of biggest challenges going into twenty twenty three? You might have come across um, you, you've t- touched upon volunteering and getting volunteers as one of them, but is there any any other points and um, that you think are going to be a bit bit of a struggle for the sector?
1: Cost of living. I mean, it's the number one um, for, for all of us, no matter what sector you're in. You know, Can we um, give cost of living rises to support our staff, particularly we all work at home and I massively worry about energy bills for my staff team um, because they are having mm. to work at home because that's that's the decision that we've taken as an organization and the funding that we've got. So, yeah, we, the cost of living is number one. We can't not talk about political uncertainty. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. you know, we we are on a on a whim um, sometimes with with politics here of, of what will get funded and what will not get funded. Um, three prime ministers in twelve months. I, I don't even know how many secretaries of state and ministers I've written yeah. to over the last twelve months. You develop a yeah. relationship, you, you you get in the door, and then you got to start again, um, and that takes time, money, and energy. So uh, yeah, political uncertainty, cost of living, um, and and I do. think...
2: Hello and welcome to episode 15 of On The Same Landing Page. As always, I'm your host, Astra Newton. I'm here with Jason. Say hello, Jason.
0: Hello, Jason.
2: (laughs) Classic dad joke to start the podcast off there. And this week we are joined by Emily Cherry. She's a self-described charity lifer who's been an official media representative for the NSPCC for 15 years and has worked with charities for over 25 Normally, uh, when we have a charity guest on, we'll tend to focus on just one particular charity, but with Emily, we are afforded an opportunity to talk about much more of them because she is involved in quite the handful. Emily, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Lovely to spend some time with you both talking all things charity.
2: All things charity, indeed. That's a great place to start. Can you just give us a brief overview of um, your history, the charities you're currently involved with, and their respective missions, which will probably fill half of the podcast (laughs) yeah it definitely (laughs) will
1: yes so so I absolutely love the charity sector so I've had the greatest pleasure to work for some of the biggest children's charities in the past so you've mentioned the NSPCC and Childline Um, I was also at Bernardo's and the Children's Society and just fell into the charity sector with the love of volunteering originally that's how I kind of joined in um, whilst I was at university Um, so the charities that I'm now involved in so it's such a privilege and an honour to be able to be chief executive of Bikeability which is. the Department for Transport's Cycle Training Programme for Children and Families. So we train about half a million children and families every year. And we're on a massive scale up um, by 2025 to be able to train every child in England. So it's a huge privilege and honour to lead that work because just teaching children to cycle as a life skill is just a joyous role, um, which is great. Um, (laughs) But then I also have a couple of other charities that I uh, sit on boards of. Um, So I, uh, sadly, a very different uh, charity um, from the perspective of the cause. So I'm chair of the Breck Foundation. Um, So this is an online safety um, education program, uh, which was absolutely founded on the Biggest tragic circumstance you can ever face as a parent. So Lauren Lafave, um, her son Breck was groomed and murdered um, in 2014, and she set up the Breck Foundation in his name to make sure that no other family or parent went through the absolute heartbreak that they did as a family. Uh, to make sure that children know how to stay safe online, and then the final charity is is a newish one. We think we're four years old now and early, um, called My Black Dog, um, and that's a peer to peer mental health charity. So we we do guest chats um uh, we're online and people can contact us free and confidentially uh, but the difference with my black dog is that everyone who answers those phones and chats has their own mental health battle and struggle so we come from a perspective of knowing and understanding and empathizing in a way that some of them uh, professional mental health charities uh d- don't use volunteers in that way so it's a really exciting three charities
2: oh, that's amazing that you have time for three <laughs> especially being the uh The chief executive of Bagability, which I know you've said before, is quite a labour intensive role and takes up sort of 90% of your time. So juggling that um, and the other two charities you're involved in, um, My Black Dog and um, the Breck Foundation, what does your sort of week look like? What is your role across those different charities and how does it differ
1: yeah well I, I think I mean here's he, a great example of where we've moved to much more flexible working um, uh, since the pandemic mm-hmm. uh, you know in t- it, 2020 when I joined uh, BikeAbility, previous to that I was commuting to London every day um, now I work at home because we've cancelled the office we're completely flexible flexible working so actually I've suddenly got four more hours in my day when I used to be sat on the train pointlessly commuting into London yeah, and yeah. that's when I, I, I then find the time to do more um, work for other charities so um, getting that better work-life balance um, I do long days, I do a lot of travels, I do I do, do yeah. a lot of evenings and weekends as well. But from my perspective, I've always felt as a charity leader, yes, it is vital that we give back our skills and experience to the sector um, and don't just focus on the one cause. So it's always something that I'm going to be committed to volunteering my time.
2: I can't believe that you've got an extra four hours back and you decided to start new charities. Maybe people <laughs> decide to have an extra four hours in bed So
0: <laughs> and not yeah, not scroll through Twitter. That's how I've probably have spent some of my four hours. Um, yeah, it's, it's inspiring stuff.
2: So, um, as you've worked sort of as well as the ones you're on board with now, like you say with Bernard and the NSPCC and um, lots of children-based charities. What's like one common thing amongst charities that you think charities do well or that they don't do well and could be doing better? What's the common themes that you see? What's the
1: common theme? So, I uh, I think um, just talking to the public about the cause mm-hmm. and the issues is something that the charity sector does really well um mm-hmm. you know we are here for the public benefit that's critical for charity purpose charity mission and and and, and to get charity registration but how you then talk to the public about the, the cause and the mission that you've got highlighting particularly in the areas that i've worked in social injustice really difficult issues you know shining a light on Quite frankly, some of the unthinkable and unspeakable things that happen to children. But doing that in a way that helps the public to understand, to um, want to get behind charities to support them, is is something I think we just do phenomenally well as a sector. And if you'd have said Mm -hmm. to me, when I was uh, I was thinking about my time at NSPCC when we were looking at the Pants campaign, which is a child sexual abuse campaign. If you'd mm-hmm. have said to me as a parent of a, I think my daughter was about two at the time, that I would feel comfortable talking to my own children about sexual abuse at the age of two i'd have gone no yeah. <laughs> but the charity sector does a really great way of supporting parents to have those difficult conversation giving you the tools helping you to to talk in that age-appropriate way and i just think we, that that's that's one of the best things that we do as a sector is is help the public to um talk about the un- unthinkable pass on that information and advice and really help people to not go through um what what some people have to tragically go through
2: yeah, I mean, on the flip side of that, obviously you've got, um, like you say, the NSPCC and talking sensitively about um, issues that will be triggering for parents, children, for pretty much anyone in society. And then uh, bikeability, which is teaching children to ride their bikes safely and stuff. Both of those things, although one of them seems really happy and one of them is obviously quite dark area of society. They both involve like a little bit of emotional upset, I suppose, because you, I mean. Bikeability might sound like the happy children Mm riding bikes, but there's also, there's a lot of um, unfortunate stories that happen in that sector as well, isn't there, that you have to portray, again, in schools and stuff, so...
1: There is, um, and for for us as a charity, so uh, whilst we can provide the training through government funding, so that's giving children their skills and the confidence to be able to cycle, it breaks my heart, and this speaks to our charitable purpose, that if you're not a child who has access to a cycle themselves, we can't Mm -hmm. provide that for you currently. We can with fundraising with partnerships and support um, and additional funding yeah. and that's where the public come in and, and and where funding comes in but it really breaks my heart that um we we have to say to some children you can't take part in training unless we can find you a cycle we mostly do we we, we try not yeah. to leave children out um but it, you know that that is not something that we currently have enough funding for every single child to do is give them access to the training and to the cycle
2: You've touched a little bit there on um, obviously the storytelling and the audience and stuff as one of the key things that you think is important across charities to do. How how do you do that? How do you approach a sensitive issue with children, for example, and make it so that they're engaged, not just bored, like, oh, parents go away, talking to me about this stuff, but getting across without as well, the other end of that is scaremongering and making them frightened and that sort of thing. How do you get that across? Yeah, so I think I think it's where um, the
1: children's sector, the charity sector, do this really well because they do take uh, massively complex, difficult issues and then break it down. We we always approach a subject thinking, you know, what's what is the core thing we need to get across to children, and how can we do that in an age appropriate way um, that gives them uh, the knowledge and the skills and the information, but isn't in a way that scaremongers, like you say, or or, or, um, or scares them. So uh, breaking it down to core, simple messages, finding fun, creative, engaging ways that you can talk to children. Sometimes that's through gamification um, and thinking Mm -hmm. about how can we turn this in a a way that really um, creatively engages children. Um, Sometimes that's uh, about finding new ways to talk to them through cartoons or social media um uh, different kind of challenges those types and, and events and things that you can do but really just breaking it down to those core messages that you want to get across to children um we i always think about harm when we're talking about messaging it's something that we're very clear at at the breck foundation you know we have mm-hmm. a educational story which is massively tragic mm-hmm. you know Breck's story is powerful because it has the most tragic ending but what mm-hmm. how we tell his story is by helping children understand and spot signs and things and then instilling them speaking to trusted adults is the most important thing to do um, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and helping them identify who those trusted adults are.
0: How do you do that in a way that's kind of doesn't require someone to go hang on we've not got the balance there right like is there a way of measuring Right, like, this is kind of off key this is too negative or like do you have like a structure or process that you go through or do, is it is it a group of you that comes to that decision
1: Yeah, so I I think um, what's what's good about the charity sector and, and particularly sort of the lo- the larger charities is is having that whole range of staff so you bring together policy staff You bring together um, uh, communications experts, marketing experts, um, people who've got expertise in teaching and talking to children, getting that core group of um, multidisciplinary professionals and saying, how do we break this down and make sure um, that we're telling this in the right way that doesn't harm children? But doing it with that constant um, thought throughout your entire process of so we can talk about difficult things, but we need to leave children with this is not a desperate situation for you. And if you're experiencing and you're feeling and facing this, this matters and this matters to adults in your life and let's work out who that trusted adult is um, in that space that you can go and talk to. And that's something that the NSPCC has always done so well um, as an organisation is, is taking those difficult issues, working it through as staff, testing it with children to make sure that the, the messaging lands well and then rolling out that service a little bit more effectively.
0: That's that's interesting as well because that the way that you can kind of get people interested in terms of the target audience as in this case is children to get them interested in what you're doing how about how does that work when it comes to getting other people other stakeholders interested like for example yourself like how how did you get involved in these charities why what about it attracted your attention and then yeah how do you change that message when you're trying to I don't know get talent involved in the organization or, or fundraisers or donations that kind of thing
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, we always think, I always think about who am I speaking to? How do I, how do you want to present the information and how do you talk? You know, I'm a, I'm a storyteller um, and I think I can tell stories to children um, and, and, Make sure that the the message is in that right way. You tell stories to adults, you tell stories to ministers, politicians, the media when you're kind of doing Mm -hmm. those things. Ultimately, it's what is the story and what do we want to get out of it and then how do I make sure I can create that personalized hook to that individual that I'm talking to. So if I'm in a room with a group of adults, I might think I need to take more of a parent angle here. Um, because mm-hmm. we're talking about a children's issue and I need to understand and think as the mind of a parent, what do they need to, or want to know about the cause or the impact that we're creating? And how do I make sure that's the focus of what I want to talk to? With children, it might be much more, how do I make sure I'm telling that story with hope and helping them see a way through Through if they're ever presented with that difficult situation? With ministers, with funders, with, with people who want to fund it, it, how do I create that emotional hook to draw them in so that they want to be outraged by what uh, what this issue and this cause um, is addressing so that they want to get behind and support it. So I think it's just that tailored communications approach.
2: Obviously, when you're dealing with all of these sorts of dark areas, um, like in the NSPCC and the Breck Foundation, it's very difficult subjects and it's not sort of a desk job that you can leave them at 5pm and then forget about. Like You take that stuff home with you, which is kind of how My Black Dog was born. Before My Black Dog or excluding the sort of conclusion of that what was your experience of support and care available to people that do work in charities and have to listen to these horrific stories day in day out and then also retell them and retell them and relive them so I think it's really interesting with the big children's charities that that
1: is something that they have massively invested in. Um, so, you know, for example, as a as a child counsellor, you go on shift, um, you get a briefing from a supervisor, you come off shift, they debrief you so that when you leave the room, you are not left with any of those thoughts, mm-hmm. feelings and emotions and processing of what you've experienced in that day. That's really great with the big charities and they've got the resources and the fundraising to be able to do that. It's much harder in small charities. Um, So this is something we've thought a lot about from a My Black Dog perspective, because currently we've got three staff members. So about 100 Mm -hmm. volunteers, three staff members. um, And that's a lot for those three staff members to manage 100 volunteers and what they're processing and what they're dealing with as as well as their day job. this is where I wish we could have more volunteers to help and support mm-hmm. small charities to take on the burden and the, the support to, to, to staff and volunteers who are doing in that space. Or it's where I wish corporate companies would get behind and say, do you know what, we, we don't need all of our um health care packages and well-being packages for our own staff. can we donate this time to smaller charities mm-hmm. so that they can support them? So I think I'm going to make a rallying call through your podcast to say come on corporates, um, can you get behind those charities that the smaller ones that really need to do much more of that staff and volunteer care but haven't got the, the funding um, out there. or indeed if there's a trust or a foundation who would just fund staff care and and volunteer care for charities that would be an absolute dream
2: yeah well that's it so So many people talk about businesses now are sort of responsible for the well-being of their staff and the sort of employee assistance programs and stuff like that and in many ways charities do still have to operate like businesses you know they they just aren't for profit and so it, it seems a shame that people working in those sectors would be sort of left behind and not have that support um but under operating a little bit more like a business i know that you are um very interested in data and uh you but previously, before coming on board with BikeAbility, it wasn't a very data-led company. Versus now, you've sort of you've banged the uh, the drum for data, and it is now a data-led organisation. Can you just talk a little bit about how you managed to a instil that because data can be very boring. <laughs> I suppose it was an element of storytelling in that as well. Um, but b just the importance of that data both in fulfilling the mission and getting funding and recruiting volunteers. Yeah, it's, do you know,
1: it's absolutely critical as a charity, if you cannot tell your, your organizational story, through the data and the impact that you're having, um, you, you're failing in your mission, but you're unlikely to be able to kind of grow as an organization. Um, it was painful, to be frank. Um, it was a good 12 month long process of um, cajoling, persuading, bit of carrot and stick um, a, a mm-hmm. approach to it. Uh, to, but ultimately, I think what got us through that period is just having that clear single-minded vision that said if we do not if we are not able to track who is taking on our services what's happening to them as a result we're going to give government And other funders an excuse to not fund us so Mm -hmm. there will not be jobs there will not be roles there will not be opportunities for children to cycle with confidence unless we can tell this story much more effectively Um, and and having the right systems to do that and getting alongside and not expecting people to do this without you so we're going to give you the tools we're going to give you the resources to do it um, but we expect that you're going to do it and i think those were the things that really helped us to get it across the line
2: yeah, I suppose people think of storytelling as quite like a literary thing, but you're right—you can tell it in sort of numbers and words, and the two of those together is surely a force to be reckoned with. Especially in the audiences that you're speaking to, sort of government and such, where it's all very numerical-driven. Um, I like, that. It's- I like and- that
0: approach. Just on that, I like that approach as well, where you take it from the point of view of they—they they may not fund us. Like, why should they fund us, given given that like we're starting from zero? Mentality is, is quite a good way of thinking about it, because you are competing with. A whole bunch of reasons why they should spend that money in other areas, in other things that they're excited about, right? So yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you I mean you can one.
1: have the most incredible charity service that's making a lot of impact, but unless you're able to talk about the who, uh, the what, and the why you are doing it, um, it, 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 your fund—that's what your funders want to know, and they're wanting to understand what has happened as a result.
2: Have you, out of interest, since you've sort of become a more data-led charity, have you seen an increase in the in the funding that you've been able to raise?
1: Uh, so we've, we've certainly uh, so I took over in 2020 we were getting 12 million mm-hmm. pounds a year um the last financial year so we're almost just about to finish it aren't we um that was a yeah. record 20 million a year so that's 8 million in two years um in terms wow. of record increases in funding uh, that, that we've achieved so yes we've definitely seen seen a growth but I think for me it's about some of the other impacts of that data strategy that I'm probably the most proud of so wonderful we've mm-hmm. got record funding in 8 million and thank you very much government in difficult times for investing in bikeability but for mm. me it's about the children so when I first came we looked at the data we're talking about real children here right so let's uh, say so yeah. we looked at children uh, yeah. <laughs> children <laughs> receiving bike from uh, those with special educational needs and disabilities was one percent of our delivery if you looked I looked at Department of Education Statistics and in, in schools um, there's a it's about 15 percent of children in the um, mainstream school uh, system have a diagnosed recon, recognized um, special educational needs and disability label um, so mm-hmm. we're getting to one percent 15 percent exist uh, in the system because we went down the data route because we mandated recording who was was going our courses from gender age ethnicity pupil premium and SEND. we've risen mm-hmm. that in 12 months
2: from one percent to ten percent wow that's, that's a much bigger win like, isn't it terms of the funding that people are helping it's, like it's all about that
1: 40, 000 children um who, yeah. who may two years ago not have gotten bikeability because um we weren't asking the right questions we didn't know they had um scnd before they were coming to the course so we couldn't plan for that we couldn't bring in adapted mm-hmm. cycles we couldn't um change the funding model so now we give up extra top out top up funding if our instructors need um to bring in an adapted cycle or they need to do a one-to-one because that's That child's got behavioural issues that need a one-to-one session. Not couldn't work in a group session. All of that wouldn't have been there if we hadn't have done the data work.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. I was just going to say, obviously, as you say, it's the end of the financial year and um, it's annual reporting season, which we know is is crazy time for charities anyway, particularly when you're working with three of them. But I know you do impact reports as well, and I was going to ask why that's so important, but you sort of laid it bare there for us, really. That without seeing you know, this funding gave 40,000, was it 40,000, 400,000?
1: Yeah, 40,000 children,
2: extra 40,000 40, children. children. Um, the ability to learn to cycle is incredible, really, really incredible. Have you got any more sort of um, stories to that effect of, of where you've put in the social impact report? And because obviously, day to day, you're sort of in the in the weeds and you're looking at numbers and funding's coming in and you're off on a road trip and you're doing this. And then at the end of the year, you take stock and you're like, wow, we've helped, we've had such yeah. an impact. Have you yeah, got any so, more kind of so, so I think we've um
1: we also uh, put in a, a slightly different way of funding this year. So we've we've got fun fantastic cycle training um, that works with, with every child and that's that's our mission but we were slightly concerned about a few groups of children so um, special education mm-hmm. and these disabilities being one but also um, black and minority ethnic children there's a lot of cultural differences with when you learn to cycle and should you learn to cycle um, and mm-hmm. the support for cycling in, in that community we didn't have an instructor workforce that represented the communities they worked in um, and we were also really worried about children in deprivation so those in poverty and low income who didn't have access to cycle and teenage girls um, who mm-hmm. just drop off um in terms of cycling rates massively and, and in fact all, all sporting by the time they get to secondary school so we said let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, but let's find some mm-hmm. other ways of doing bikeability and go out to different organizations so not local councils um who, who hold the funding normally but ask mm-hmm. for charity groups community groups schools themselves and come to us and say we've got an innovation fund work out some different ways of teaching to this particular group. We'll give you the money, we'll give you the resources, we'll evaluate it and and see what works. Um, And that widening participation fund, we're just about to um, publish the report in the next few weeks. And you know what? We've got some stonkingly amazing, great examples due to come out soon that show the difference that those projects made. Stuff as simple as doing a, a, a summer school for teenage girls mm-hmm. before they come to secondary school um, or doing some work on body image and self-esteem and self-confidence and self-defense before we got them onto cycles um absolutely amazing examples training some um, muslim women in um i think that one was up in liverpool and bradford to work with mm-hmm. asylum seeking children um and that's really yeah. raised cycling rates uh, in that in that community so we've got some fantastic examples but that was a mindset from us to say let's mm-hmm. We don't have all the answers let's go and work with the communities that do have the answers know those communities and then work out how can we work together much more in the future
0: well, it's such a, a it's such a reward to having a bit of vulnerability as well about knowing where your shortcomings are in certain areas and working with other people and other organizations that you don't see that as much in business so there's things that can learn you can we can definitely learn from in business from charities and we've talked as well a bit about how charities need to run more as business but that's an example of how businesses could learn more like we you always want to do your own thing it's like yeah cool they're doing maybe a podcast in that area but we'll do a better one or like they're they're, they're operating in that market but we'll beat them with our market share it's a very ego led um kind of approach whereas in your case it's like let's just get the mission done like let's get it complete um what do you think then are the the kind of biggest challenges going into 2023 you might have come. Of course, um, you, you've t- touched upon volunteering and getting volunteers is one of them, but is there any any other points um, that you think are going to be a bit, bit of a struggle for the sector?
1: Cost of living. I mean, it's the number one um, for, for all of us, no matter what sector you're in. You know, Can we um, give cost of living rises to support our staff, particularly we all work at home and I massively worry about energy bills for my staff team um, because they are having mm. to work at home because that's that's the decision that we've taken as an organisation and the funding that we've got. So, yeah, we, the cost of living is number one. We can't not talk about political uncertainty. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. you know, we we are on a on a whim um sometimes with with politics here of, of what will get funded and what will not get funded. Um three prime ministers in 12 months i i don't even know how many secretaries of state and ministers i've written yeah. to over the last 12 months you develop a yeah. relationship you, you you get in the door and then you've got to start again um, and that takes time money and energy so uh yeah political uncertainty cost of living um and, and i do think um there's there's something there's definitely something about volunteers and and, and people um not having as much time feeling so stressed and um I I see this a little bit at my black dog, uh, particularly with the volunteers. You know, they haven't got as much time in their personal lives and they're dealing with so much more. You worry about the volunteers themselves and the offers and the times that they can give and the impact on them. So it's on us to make sure that we're providing as much support as we can to volunteers so that they feel it's got a dual benefit to them to volunteering because that's what volunteering is about. It's not just a you give up your time and you get nothing out of it. This has to be a dual benefit to help you um, and support you. And I think. I think that's
0: what we're doing quite well at my black dog now awesome yeah there's um i i know some people that working in like various government roles and they said there was a time where on the on the council level people just didn't know what to do because of the political unrest whereby there were weeks months even gone past where like people were like well i don't know are we going to carry on with this project we don't know if they we're going to have the same it's like people in charge over the next it is horrendous for actually getting anything done and that has knock-on massive knock-on impacts for the work you do right because that's a lot of your funding it, comes it, it
1: has a massive impact and I think we've also we also have to talk about short term funding cycles and short term strategies. Um, wouldn't it be a joy if all organisations, including government, could be thinking 10, 20 years and not 12 months? Um, and right. we've got a little bit more stuck, particularly, I think, much more exacerbated since Covid that we are still short term planning. Um, so rising demand across the charity sector, but only short term funding contracts to meet that demand. So by the time you've planned started to deliver the service you're back into renegotiating on the next round of funding um, and that doesn't help anybody we need long-term security and long-term visions that we can be delivering to
0: yeah you know, absolutely it's um it's like living paycheck paycheck to paycheck if you're doing that you yeah. can't you're not going to ever get anywhere are you with and that's the that's like the thing with charities and businesses if you're if you're constantly running on a cycle that's short how are you ever going to create long lasting change um, well, um, I don't know quite what the segue is from that—a really serious <laughs> question—into segment two, which is a which is a more of a, a, a fun type of segment. But what I will do is, um, we always ask people to come on, and because we are at the heart of our genesis, a marketing podcast, we ask them just to come on and give us some feedback on what they see is the kind of more most effective channels for bringing attention to their cause or, or to their business if if, if that's the, the case. So I'm going to ask you if you could to, or, to organize um, these four channels into their into the levels of effectiveness in terms of raising that attention. So uh, we've got pay-per-click advertising which is like yeah. Google search advertising, uh, social media organic and paid, uh, email marketing, and social uh, search engine optimization.
1: Oh, so you want, to, want them ranked? Um, yeah. So I think social media is the number one for us at the moment. Ah, uh, my com my comms team would say SEO, Emily. <laughs> you know, <laughs> making sure that our website is the number one. So that would probably be the number two. Um, yeah. Then I think uh, pay per click probably the bottom one for us
0: and then so that, that leaves email marketing, marketing yeah email marketing
1: in, in third yeah
0: and how how confident are you maybe this is across um across all of the the charities that you help um how confident are you with the marketing that you're you're currently putting in place for 2023 and the follow-up question to this will be how are you going to improve that score
1: um, I think so. We we have, uh, like like a lot of charities, we, we've got internal marketing. So that's all the organizations that we work with. So our training providers and our instructors, so our staff team, and then obviously the external marketing as well out to them. I think we're really confident on the internal marketing. We know who we're talking to, um, what we need to talk to them about and, and how we get to them less so on the external marketing because it is becoming much more difficult to get any free and earned media um, unless you have got a negative story to tell which we don't at bikeability we've got too much for a positive story we can't get any free media. <laughs> we don't have a massive marketing budget, So we can rely on um, Google ad credits and and other things to get out on social media, but um, I can't take out page ads and I can't do paid for um, marketing and media uh, to to get more people to support us because we just simply don't have the budget. So we're we're much more concerned on the external side. And how do we create that cut through when we're competing with organizations that will have hundreds of thousands of pounds um, in their marketing budget and we just can't, can't compete in that space?
0: Um, there is like a bit of a pull for reaching for the negative in a storyline because it does get the attention um and that is kind of what will work how do you balance knowing that with keeping your integrity as a charity and not going down that path
1: so this is something at Bankability we take and awful lot of care and attention to um, we want to always avoid over dangerizing language um, around road safety and road danger because it puts parents and children uh, off um, from then being allowed to cycle um, so we've deliberately moved our strategy to talk about this being a life skill and confidence building and enabling people to cycle rather than um, uh, talking about road safety and danger when it comes to media the only media we will get cover- coverage for um or they will ask us onto if there's been an accident and that's when they then want commentary and how to avoid that we don't talk about avoidance we talk specifically about these are the skills and the experience and the confidence that we will teach you so that you are better able to deal with any road condition um, that is faced with you and that's what the evidence says um, about our program Uh, but I will never go on and say to parents don't put your children to cycle on the road Help and support your children to cycle on the road with our top tips, um, and this is how that you can do, how you can do it in in the most confident and enabling way.
0: Right, yeah, that's that's something we talked about before. With how it is, it's like there's things that will attract us to a to a headline, and it'll be something like, "I had a crash and it wasn't my fault." And the, yeah, okay, <laughs> that will get people to read, but it's not sending the right message, and it's actually just adding more fuel to the to the fire rather than helping educate in any way um, that would make that better. Right. Um, that's really interesting I, I think the last point on this was um, what did, would you do to improve that but I think you said you, you kind of covered that a little bit before before the break um, I'll go on to segment two which is uh, fake facts which I've got a little slide presentation for but for our listeners we will just be I'll, I'll make <laughs> sure I read everything out um, so I'm going to share my screen for the benefit of anyone viewing uh here also emily
2: i don't know um i have never seen these before so you and i will be
0: (laughs) (laughs) so if you've not listened to before the we're going to put um some statistics up and there's going to be three statistics all related to the kind of what we've been discussing which is bikeability um and cycling safety now now if i get
1: them wrong does that mean i'm out of a job
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, you because... you are your
2: employer, so I think
0: you're safe. <laughs> yeah, and so far, everyone's put PPC as the fourth most effective channel. And, and that's I'm just not there. out of a job. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so one of them will be fake. Um, one of them's made up, but not by a lot. It's only like slightly ed- exaggerated. So it's quite it's quite tough. Um, okay, guys, you're both up. So the first one is cycling made up 1.8% of the traffic in England in 2020 cycling has increased in popularity by 300% since the pandemic? Or is it that cycling, as a proportion of traffic in England, raised 49% from 2019 to 2020? And I need the false fact, which one's a lie?
2: Ooh, I I think the first one might be false, only because I know it definitely got more... Uh, more of an increase after the pandemic and the third one looks like a more um systematically arranged answer so <laughs> i think the first one okay. about you emily
1: yeah it's a uh, the 1.8 percent i mean whilst it's specific so um it depends on which areas of the country look like a national travel survey so i think it's the first one
0: okay let's find out it's uh it's number two. Oh, yeah, so two hundred percent. It's still gone up. Yeah, hugely gone up, but only by two hundred percent, not three hundred percent, in in popularity since the pandemic. Um, I actually cycled much more since the pandemic. So that on the sample size of Jason Morton, that is also true. Um, Sixteen thousand. Next, next round. Sixteen thousand two hundred ninety-four people were injured whilst riding a bike in twenty twenty. Is it that the UK is the third safest country in the world to ride a bike? Or is it that 92,055 people are injured whilst driving a car in 2020? Which one is fake?
2: It's gotta be the UK's third safest country, surely. The roads are a mess.
1: Yeah, and we have really high traffic volumes and levels. Um, mm. the, the top one, so killed and seriously injured statistics sounds about right. I can't remember them exactly off the top of my head, um, but that sounds about the right. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I was talking the other day. There was about 11,000 children killed and seriously, in, in 11,000 children, sorry, 11,000 adults um, on the roads in 2022, and it had gone down.
0: So that well, one feels the mm-hmm. right. You're both right. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, number two. So we are actually 10th. We're the 10th safest country in the world.
1: I bet the uh, Netherlands is number one.
0: I wish I knew, but I I would expect it is. It's going to be, it's going to, yeah, it's definitely going to be one of those um, in the top three. Um, So, yeah, very good. Then half of all children ages 6 to 11 in the UK are not taught road safety in school. Is that the fake fact? Or is it that the sales of bikes rose 22% in 2020? due to the pandemic? And 67% of people aged five and over own a bike in England, which of those is fake?
2: Ooh, I think the last one, it seems too high and Emily would be out of a job if it were true. (laughs) Yeah, I think
1: it's lower than that. So uh, 44% of children aged 6 to 11 in the UK uh, receive bike ability. So it's around about half. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's so not a specific, the first one. Um, bike sales did go up. Was it 22% now? I can't remember the exact figures. But cycle ownership of age five. So I actually think it's higher than that, I, I which is a surprise. It's, it, it, I think it was about 70% when we last looked at it.
0: Yeah let's mm-hmm. uh um, let's have a look so it's the fake fact is that oh, 67 percent of people uh aged five and over own a bike in england it's actually 47 percent um and that it's concludes quite um I, I i missed the scores what was the scores is it what one, one all in the end uh i think yeah you you've both got one haven't you
2: yeah, but, yeah. We, we call we, it yeah, a magnanimous draw yeah magnanimous <laughs> i like it <laughs> Mine was um, wildly, wildly fluky, and Emily's is based on years of experience and knowledge. So I think we have to call her the winner, really. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. There's definitely a better way to like. No,
1: I need again. to. I need to revise my stats again. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but we'll uh, we'll include the, the 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 stats and all of the, all of the like uh, the the sources for that information in the yeah. show notes as we follow up with. Um, and that brings us on to the final segment, which is uh, strategy analogy. Do you okay. want to, to to do this one, Astrid? Uh,
2: let me pull up the random word generator. Do you want to just recap for Emily and the listeners?
0: Yeah, so um, in strategy analogy, we're going to be presented with a with a noun of sorts, uh, a word that we've not seen before, uh, which Astrid's just going to generate um, now. And we've just got to triambulate something that we've already discussed, or normally we do this with uh, with marketing. So how is marketing like this word? And then an analogy which would be conjured up. But in this case, we can cover off any of the things that we've discussed, i.e. what have we discussed? Getting people's attention, but the right way and not going bottom of the barrel um understanding how important it is to tell stories at different levels and whether that means bringing people and talent into your organization or just proving that you're worthy of, of investment from the government um there's been a lot of discussion about well how you manage to to pull the right stories from the charities that you work in and also how you divide up all of this time that you've been given <laughs> so that you're spending it um and also work from home and the and the that's that it has on people Uh, for charities as well um does that provide enough time for you to to bring it up yes i have i have
2: generated the word and the word is um in the words of jason orange patience that was a take that joke if nobody got that
0: (laughs) (laughs) patience
2: patience yeah um i suppose Riding. a but We deal with we
1: things. deal with children, and we deal with we need our instructors need the greatest patient patience in the world. Sometimes for the random questions that children will ask whilst they're trying to teach them complex <laughs> cycling <laughs> maneuvers, um, <laughs> and that requires an awful lot of patience. Um, very much so, but also some some humour as well. But yeah, it's it, it, you cannot work with children if you if you're not prepared
2: to go at their level, and mm. be patient yeah. with them. Yeah, I think as well, riding a bike is probably something that um, you have to be extremely patient with, particularly when children tend to get frustrated and not want to continue with something they're not good at. And just like riding a bike needs patience, running a bike, charity also needs patience, because like you said, if if you'd completed the mission, you would be out of a job kind of thing, and there'd be nobody left to help. So you need patience to get to where you want to be, help all the people you want to help, and um, get the funding that you need, essentially which isn't really an analogy, but it feels like a nice closure to this this podcast. So, Jason, what have you got?
0: Yeah, I think um, just patience has come up a few times in the conversations we've had with with organisations that try so many different things and measure the results after maybe, you know, well, as long as their budget or as long as their resource or their attention span provides. Um, And that can always often be too short. Like if you're going to measure... Many of the number of things we've talked about after maybe a one-month cycle or a two-month cycle, there would be failures. And if you measured a lot of the most successful companies after a year or two years, there'd be failures too. There's a lot of patience to be had in building momentum, getting the message out there, especially with organisations like this. And then saying, right, what have we achieved? Like you talked about at the end when you do the impact report and you realise how many thousands of children's lives you've affected, That comes down to patience and believing in in something and, and putting the effort in and not measuring it every week <laughs> so what did we do last week was it worth it so yeah,
1: and, and, um, and when you're talking about training children you're talking about um, leaving them with a life skill that actually we've got to be yeah. patient as an organization that they might not show that skill next week next month it might not be until they become a parent themselves when they start to train to train their own children and think about think about that so let's have patience and uh, confidence I'm going to add a can I can I add another one into the analogy yeah. <laughs> um, that <laughs> the, the mission and the vision is working to um, complete a generation of psych cyclists um and we might not see that rise in initially with loads more people cycling on the roads but i am absolutely completely confident and sure that we are making a whole generation of cyclists
2: awesome that's an awesome sentiment so that sort of brings a natural close is there anything emily you want to add about any of your charities any more rallying cries you have before we close up and say our goodbyes I
1: think I just anyone who's listening, it's like this is the most exciting sector to work in in charities. And we need people from a variety of background skills and experiences as volunteers, as trustees um, and as staff members. And if you want to get up every day thinking I'm going to make a difference to something or somebody in the world, this is the sector to do it in. So, you know, if you're at a point in your life where you're thinking, I don't know what's next for me, I say come to the charity sector and we need you.
2: Well, Brilliant. thank you very much for your time, Emily. It's been fantastic uh, speaking to you. Lots of experience and lots of insights. So thanks for your time. Thanks for joining no, us. No,
1: welcome, welcome. And thanks thanks for your lovely to meet you virtually.
2: Virtually. Uh, goodbye to all our listeners and we'll see you on the next episode.